Welcome to Stories We Don't Tell, a podcast about storytelling. Stories We Don't Tell is a monthly event in Toronto that features candid stories of strength and resilience. I threw out my prayers, they went flying like balloons. The air whipped our hair, we went shooting down the valley. Knuckles gripped upon the handles, shivers rushing down my spine. Today on the Stories We Don't Tell podcast, we're talking about audiences and the agreements that we make with them. Unspoken agreements, mostly. (laughs) Mostly. We also sometimes say it. Yeah. Well, the spoken agreements that we did not anticipate discussing, the spoken agreements are just the rules. And whenever I do the rules, I say that there's two, but there's so many caveats. There's really three. Yeah. Sometimes I say three, I guess, but there's caveats. And sometimes I forget them like this week because I was not prepared. But sorry, yeah. listeners. <laughs> uh, all right, so uh, yeah, so it was a two-part episode. Yes. Uh, this first part is is called uh, protect the audience, buck the audience, trust the audience. Maybe. Maybe we might do that one eventually. Yeah. If yeah. you're interested, listeners, let us know. We'll do one on trust the audience. Tweet a trusting turtle to Stefan, and he'll know. That's all I need. Yeah, it's my one goal in life. I know. Uh, yeah, but anyways, so what do we mean when we say protect the audience? Yeah. That's the real question here. That's my um, question. And, we, and I think we sort of, we broke it down into, into two different packs to some extent. Yes. Uh, the pact that the storyteller has, a storyteller has to any audience they walk in front of, and a pact that an event has to its, uh, to its audience. To so the people that have come to yeah. the event. And then there's, we also have one little thing at the end about, about the pact between the audience, uh, between the, sorry, the storyteller and the event. But that's a, we'll get to that at the end. Spoiler alert. Spoiler. Also, I have an app called Pact on my phone, and it gives me money for eating vegetables. All right. Well, I'm glad we got there. That's great. Uh, okay. So the first, the first one, we want to start with the, the pact that you make uh, between the storyteller and the audience. So if you are telling any story, these are three things that the audience should be able to expect you are doing. Yes. Uh, the first is that you are telling a true story, presuming that you have, you know, you are at an event where you tell true stories. Yeah. So, I mean, in Toronto, there's a whole series of events and they are all geared to, they're all marketed as storytelling events. And the understanding is definitely that these are true or true-ish. Yeah. And when we say true-ish, we probably talked about this before. When we say true-ish, we mean like true to the feeling that you lived through. So your telling of a story might be different than somebody else's telling of a story, but that doesn't mean that either of you are being untrue. Yeah. Well, for example, I told a story uh, last week or this weekend, uh, which was about my grandfather. And in it, I basically mesh like three years together in little vignettes over back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. All of them happened. All of them were true. Yeah, I just didn't say, and then this happened three years ago. I sort of, if you, you listen to it, them. it sounded as if it happened in one week. Uh, which they didn't, but it didn't. So I would argue it did not change the the meaning of the story or really the events of the story really at all. Sure, yeah, definitely. It's stuff like that. It's also like if there are th- if there are kind of peripheral people in your stories, you can merge peripheral people into one person, just like you can merge timelines if they're irrelevant. Stuff like that that make it easier to understand. That's fine. But talking about an event that didn't happen or an event that you were not present for. 
or just yeah, or adding parts of it that never happened or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. The thing about also committing to w- working on your story and, and having your audience know that you worked on your story means that if you say leave a couple cliffhangers or red herrings, something like that, it's not an indication of a poorly written story. Those are intentional works into your story. Uh, whereas I think if you get up on stage and you just sort of you know just blurt out a bunch of things, there's not necessarily a hidden meaning behind the story, and I think you can actually get a deeper level of buy-in from the audience because they're trying to understand really what you're going for rather than presuming you didn't try and didn't do anything. An important addendum to that is a question of like, if you owe the audience a story, then what what constitutes a story? Like, what are the elements that mean that something is a story? Because there are some that are really the classic story arc where there's the intro and then there's the crescendo and then there's the wind down. That's what they call it, right? In, in middle school? Sure. Denouement. Yeah. The crescendo and then the denouement, <laughs> the climax. Uh, so there's that. And that's definitely like Hero Goes on a Journey. There are stories like that. But I would argue that we deal with fewer of those stories than some other places. And so it is actually kind of a messy question. What makes a story? Right. Yeah. And because we've had, you're right, we've had some stories that are, you know, we, we had a story that was just a, telling of a phone conversation yeah uh and that was it it was and that there's no any of those things right it was just sort of a it had a beginning and an end yeah uh, which, which i think might literally be all i would ask okay. is that if your beginning leads to your end i'm willing to consider that a story okay i think your structurally your beginning leads to your end and you obviously feel something mm. in the story and the work that you're doing between the beginning and the end is you're trying to share that feeling with the audience. Yeah, that's that's all I would really need, I think. Yeah. Uh, which which ties in well to our third uh, and final thing that a storyteller requires uh, must give its audience must give their audience, which is that you have to be trying to bring your audience into your story, which again again may seem ridiculous uh, and so obvious, but I think there's people can get really wrapped up uh, in a whole bunch of different ways of doing this, right? If you, you either, you get lost in trying to just make people laugh and completely lose the arc of the story or the emotion of the story, or you are so badly trying to convey a specific feeling that means something to you that you can't get the audience to feel that with you and you sort of don't, aren't really working on that, on that aspect. Um, or, or you're talking about something that is so outside the realm of people's experience without trying to bring it back to what might be in someone's experience. Uh, that you're sort of just, you lose everyone. Mm-hmm. Because you want them to feel what you felt. Right. And I think, and I think you have, I think it's a danger to, that if you, to, to go too far down any of these, any path that where you get so lost in yourself uh, that you sort of lose the ability to make, to, to even draw people into you. Mm-hmm. Or you're just intentionally creating barriers. Like your story is about how xyz you are so if your story is about how great you are or how lucky you are or how angry you are just anything that's going to alienate people the you kind of owe them a build up so that they will reach that climactic emotion with you whatever it may be yeah you can't start angry be angry for 10 minutes and then expect someone to get it (laughs) like if you don't tell them why you're angry they're not going to be not going to get it with you that sounds like a really great show (laughs) start angry be angry get it yeah 
Uh, okay, so uh, now that we've accepted that those are basically three things uh, that you as a storyteller owe your audience, uh, very quickly, let's go through the things that as an event we think you owe your audience. Because yeah. we've talked about this a lot. And, and, and it, this very much influences how we try to guide our tellers. Definitely. Uh, and there are two that we really actually use as examples for ways that tellers, uh, like, I think a, a storyteller could come and bring a story which they think is really good and may be really good, but they might have missed these things because I think you, you, sometimes you would be a blind eye because it's you, happening to you. Yeah. Uh, which we sort of try to weed out of people's stories. Yes. It's a weeding process. Yeah. Uh, and the first one, uh, well, first of all, they're, they're both linked, but the first one is, uh, we say this a bunch, and we probably said it on a previous podcast, but to make sure that if you are not the hero in your story, uh, especially if you are the villain of your story, uh, you have to ensure your audience that you are not that person in the room. So like if you are telling a story where you commit some sort of atrocity, uh, you and you leave everyone thinking that you might sit down and then you know commit that atrocity once again, uh, that's not cool. And right. an event should not ever allow a person to tell a story like that who yeah. would make the audience feel unsafe and let them walk back into the audience and sit down beside someone. Yeah, like I once mugged somebody because I thought that it was a good idea. And then if the story doesn't resolve, like basically if you commit an atrocity in your story, let's just turn this all the way up. If you commit an atrocity in your story, then the goal of that story is to bring the audience to a place where that action seems inevitable. So like they also feel that they would have done that too in that scenario. And consequently, they can understand that the person you are now relaying this, who has that kind of insight and capacity to explain, they can relate to that whole process and be like, okay, yes, you are at that point. Clearly, based on the analysis that you just gave, you're not at that point anymore, as opposed to like, this is a story about how I mugged somebody. And then you sit down and you're like, is this guy going to mug me when we leave? Like, you don't want that. Yeah. And an event, you, I think event, uh, this again, we're, I think like we're saying a bunch of obvious things that we find has not been as obvious as you think. Yeah. Uh, but I think an event has an obligation, again, a pact with its audience that it will not make them feel unsafe mm-hmm. uh, and let them sit there with the person who made them feel unsafe. You just, as an audience, you should be able to go to every event you've ever been to and not think that you might, you know, be mugged by the person you're sitting beside you. And the caveat is if you're not used to feeling feelings, that might make you feel unsafe. So I just want to acknowledge that, like, for some people, it's a really overwhelming experience to have feelings at all. And we can't promise you that that won't happen. But we can commit and make an agreement with our audiences that we're not going to have somebody put you in that position where you feel unsafe just being in a room with the storyteller. Yeah, I guess, the, yeah. The storyteller themselves have to make feeling safe, not the feelings you're feeling, I guess. Right. I just think it's important to note that. That's a good point. Fortunately, this next point is very related to that idea, which is that not only do you not want them to think that they're in a room with a person who may be a villain, but the reason for that, or the way that that shakes out, is that if you are telling a story in which you are perhaps the villain or the antagonist, you need to make sure that you're not asking the audience for redemption. So that's the flip side of that is like, you need to be so far past it that the audience can tell that you're far past it so that they feel safe there with you. And you need to go in with no expectation that they're going to redeem you. Yeah. Because there's nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing worse than being in a room where the person up stage is trying, is basically, is basically asking the audience to forgive them. Uh, and and it's an unfair honestly it's an unfair expectation to be put on 
unsuspecting audience members, uh, which is, again, why the event should never let that happen. Right. Because the audience, the audience is there to listen to stories, not to forgive people or be scared. Yeah, and, and those really go hand in hand. So those, I think, like, I think that it is so brave. This is, this is the piece of it. It's really brave to tell a story in which you don't come off looking that great. Mm. So it's a really challenging process to, to do the work to tell a story like that. And that's why I think we want to belabor this so much because it's not about discouraging people from telling those stories. Like those stories need to be told. We need to hear stories from those perspectives because they're human and because we all have stories like that. But you really, really do need to protect people when you're telling them because you don't know. And this ties into one of our next facts. Yeah. You don't know what other people have been through. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I think, so the, the, yeah, so then the last two are really even more event-based, like much, you know, the storyteller almost doesn't, doesn't really need to factor in at all in these last two mm-hmm. uh, for the pact, between the pact of the event and, 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 the, and, the, uh, and the people. Because one, the first one, I think, is, is just your audience deserves to know what they're walking into. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, you can't you, you you can't have an event that's billed as a light fluffy event and then make them sit through six harrowing tales. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's you, if you're if you're doing that, you should tell them you're doing that, and then that's fine. But you should tell them you're doing that. Um, and the second, which I think is even more important, and I think really ties into this, is that you can't like you must if you are having any if you're telling a harrowing tale uh, or any sort of tale that ha- might that might trigger someone's experiences that they've experienced. Uh, or feelings about the things that they've experienced, you have to warn the audience that that's coming. Yeah, and I think that trigger warnings, as they are called for the unfamiliar, trigger warnings are something that we're definitely still learning about, and they're really difficult because, of course, you can't possibly know everybody's experience about everything in the world. Um, and so the story that we're going to play today uh, addresses this. Word. We'll play it after. Yeah. But it... I don't think spoiler alert. Like no. it touches on eating disorders. Yeah, it, yeah. So I think it, not yeah, touches I think on. It, it totally. Focuses it's entirely on. about eating disorders. It's about an, yeah. It's about eating disorders. And so Tyler Blackyear, whose story it is, he was really worried about sharing the story, and he went through a really intensive vetting process of his own writing to take out any details that he was worried would be kind of specifically triggering in the way that they just accounted something. And, um, and then he was also really committed to, we did a trigger warning on the event, and then he did his own trigger warning before the story. And it's just, you want to let people know what they're going to hear. Because especially with something that is as tied in with trauma and mental health as eating disorders are, for example, because that's a story that we'll be playing, like, and trigger warning, <laughs> this will be a story that uh, heavily touches on eating disorders, is that People need to make space. Not everyone's ready to hear about that. Not everyone's ready to whatever. And it, you know, people relive their trauma when they're not expecting to hear a story that will directly relate to trauma. Yeah. Well, I think this is just a mild soapbox for half a second. Uh, what gets what annoys me so much about sort of you, you, the, even the word trigger warning has become this thi- this like uh, boogeyman on the internet. Yeah, it's uh, true. As if, as if, like no trigger warnings in my classroom. Yeah, a real article that was written. Oh my god. Um, because it's like, there is absolutely no negative to informing people that they, that they might be reliving a traumatic experience. Yeah. Some people are like, it's censorship. Yeah. (laughs) Because people on the internet think that everything is censorship. Yeah, exactly. Um, but like, there's no negative. No one has ever gotten up from one of our events and been like, you gave me a trigger warning and that ruined my entire experience. Yeah. And some of the things about it, I mean, okay, so here's, here's where it becomes 
difficult is the wrong word, but here's something that we've definitely been trying to figure out is that it's gross to describe it as a spoiler, Hmm. but less with eating disorders, but with some stories about sexual assault that we have encountered so far, one of the things about just the nature of some of those stories is that people are talking more about just like grappling with the experience. So the story will kind of dance around the fact that uh, an individual person, women mostly in these cases, aren't necessarily wanting to name it as sexual assault. And so um, it impacts the reception of this story if you proceed it by saying, this is a story about sexual assault. If it's a woman talking about whether or not she identifies as having been sexually assaulted. It, 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 yeah, it, the problem is when a trigger warning impacts the almost the truth of the story that the person is trying to convey. Yeah, and so this, is, this isn't something that we have an answer to. No. Is why I am now talking about this so publicly. <laughs> so one of the ways that we have tried to address this so far, but this is what I think like the most important part is engaging in a dialogue with your audience. So one of the ways that we've tried to address this so far is to do a generic catch-all at the very, very beginning before we even start the show to say like these always cover some tough topics. Here are some of the topics we anticipate touching on tonight. Please talk to us in advance and we can make sure that you're comfortable and safe. Yeah, yeah. I think we, we especially for those cases where like one of these stories has this in it. If this is going to be a thing for you, please come tell us. Uh, and so the last before we go to <laughs> we go to uh, this long monologue. Yeah, exactly. Well, no, this is going to be a long show. Uh, and just because and it was funny about having a long show is that the last thing we have is a what we've determined is actually a pact that the storyteller has with the event. Yes. Uh, which is an interesting one. And I think it's more, we, I think we have a whole show on this, but we're not mentioning it now just because, I think because it's actually important for all of this conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, because, which is that the storyteller owes the event to stick within the timeline, time limit. Which I would like to also reclassify as they owe the event that they're going to stay on script. Right. Yes. Uh, yes. So, is, right. Because again, as, we, as you'll see, Tyler actually tells a much longer story than they normally have, but we knew what he was doing. Uh, he told us he was going to tell a longer story. We said, okay, it's a great story. We definitely want it on our show. And then we made room for it by okay. basically not having a sixth teller. And then he told the basically what was the fifth and sixth story. Yeah, well, he did what a lot of people do, which is they come into the first workshop with something that's about 15 minutes long. And we say that the target is five to 10, shoot for seven. Mm. And he came in with something that was 16 minutes long. And he was like, tell me how to cut it. And we were like, maybe don't cut it. Maybe just keep it all. Yeah. He was like, really? And we were like, yes. Yeah, because I, yeah, man. Well, you hear the story. If, yeah. you, if you think you could have got the story up in something else, by all means, make the case. Uh, Tweet but, a picture of a turtle at Stefan, but yeah. make it an angry turtle. There we go. Angry so, turtles for this one. So it trusting turtle if you want a third part to this series yes and an angry turtle if you want to edit the story and now a story from tyler black in the journey of your life there are certain moments that change the way you perceive understand and interact with the world around you certain moments that for better or worse irreparably shape your reality On a cold day in late February 2014, sitting in a room with 20 or so strangers brought together by shared experience, I encountered one such moment. 
spurred on by an unexpected but not altogether surprising realization. Tiny atoms of struggle and challenge, strength and perseverance began to swirl together in a dense mass. Over the course of the succeeding two-hour support session, a rare cosmic event would fuse these particles together in a ball of superheated energy. The result would be a new sun at the center of my and her solar system, around which the planets of our lives would revolve for the months and years to come. She and I had met a few months shy of a year earlier, and it had started really like any textbook romance. I, weary from a lengthy video editing session, stumbled out of my room and found her in my apartment. <laughs> Odd, I know, but her presence had a simple explanation. She was, as I'd learned, the lifelong best friend of a friend. That friend also happened to be dating my current roommate. She, the apartment stranger, had, having spent the last semester in Panama, was back in Toronto for the first time in months, and so all of them, her, friend, roommate, were in the apartment. As I peered from around the corner toward the living room, which should have been a simple greeting morphed into a social train wreck, as I, still only halfway in the room, awkwardly tried to reach over the top of the couch and around the head of my roommate to shake her hand. <laughs> After a technically brief but conceptually eternal series of puzzled glances and stuttered movements, I completed my entry into the living room and we greeted with a hug. The rest of the night passed by in a flurry of laughter, weird YouTube videos, and terrible drink combinations, as they do. For the record, past tenant, sink top cupboard, blue curacao, and raspberry sourpuss do not a delicious cocktail make. Now, I can't tell you that it was the fabled love at first sight, but whatever it was, I was pretty smitten. And it sort of just grew from there. I'd find out about her eating disorder sometime around late August or early September. Now when I say that I found out about her eating disorder, it was really the most minimal conditions that led to the truth of that phrase. I have an eating disorder, full stop, or as a former English professor would always say, period, end of paragraph. Wanting, her, wanting to let her tell me things on her own terms and time, I didn't press for more. And so I was left sitting in the somewhat vague position of knowing that eating disorders were a thing that existed, and not much more beyond that. So I kept waiting, ready to be there when she needed me, but otherwise feeling pretty useless. It would be a few months, late November or early December, until either the eating disorder began to take a stronger hold, or she just became more comfortable telling me about it. Slowly at first, and then with greater frequency, the number of conversations we'd have about the difficulties it was causing her would grow. By January, it was becoming increasingly clear that the eating disorder was a force she couldn't tackle on her own. With the growing impact it was having on both of our lives, I would start attending the family and friends support sessions at Sheena's place a community center offering group support for individuals struggling with eating disorders, where she had been taking some sessions. And so that was how I ended up, one cold day in late Je February 2014, sitting in a room with 20 or so strangers 
brought together by shared experience, watching an unexpected but not altogether surprising realization kickstart the formation of a new sun at the center of my and her solar system. Walking into that first session, my first real steps into the more clinical world of eating disorders, I knew, at least in theory, that it was a long road. I knew this wasn't the sort of thing where you pop a fisherman's friend and then everything is A-OK. -okay. <laughs> but it wasn't until I was in that room, surrounded by 20 or so strangers, it wasn't until the story from one parent of their daughter's sudden and harsh slide back into relapse, it wasn't until the 60-something-year-old man, there for his wife, for who 30 years of their marriage had been dealing with her eating disorder, that the length and inclination of the road we were setting out on, and just how completely our lives would come to revolve around this, really set in. They say that when faced with situations of hyperarousal or acute stress, we have a physi physiological reaction known as fight or flight. In that moment, in that room, faced with the enormity of this faceless thing that had forced its way into her, and now my, life, I knew I wasn't going anywhere. There was no question. Common wisdom is that there are plenty of fish in the sea, or in keeping with the space metaphor, plenty of galaxies in the sky. And though I didn't know what to expect or how I would handle it, this faceless, mysterious, and unknown it, I knew that this particular solar system, with her and I and now this new sun, felt like home, and I wasn't about to be uprooted. But that didn't make it any easier. By late February of last year, it was becoming clear that the group sessions that she was attending through Sheena's place weren't enough to combat the punches her eating disorder was throwing. I need you to understand, this thing, if left unchecked, could kill you. You're standing on a train track, and you need to make the decision about whether you're going to step out of the way. Her, her parents, and I are sitting in a family-based treatment session, and the therapist finishes this sentence and takes a long look around the room. I find a sudden fascination in the floor, and so can't tell what everyone else is thinking. I just keep replaying the therapist's words over and over in my mind. This thing could kill her. This thing that I can't see or touch or interact with. This thing that I try desperately to identify and understand and help her combat on a daily basis. Feeling of failure often not far behind. This thing, this mystery, could kill her. Her, this very real and very present person that in contrast I can understand and hold and love. And it's terrifying. There's no handbook on caring for someone with an eating disorder. Every person's unique reality and experience with the illness guarantees the truth of that statement. And though, ultimately, it is up to her to best this thing, I can't help but feel the need to do more, even if I don't know how. The family-based treatment session is the answer to the what next that came, that came when it was clear that Sheena's place wasn't enough. The treatment is one normally used 
with young children who are struggling with eating disorders and involves the parent taking complete control of all things food-related, from purchasing to preparing to portioning and meal supervision. The goal is to restore the patient back to a healthy target weight. The logic is that maintaining this healthy weight is a crucial first step toward long-term recovery and the treatment of the eating disorder's other, more internal challenges. Though very successful with young patients, the amount of control necessitated by the treatment becomes harder as the patient matures and develops more autonomy. The study we're in now, though, is an attempt to adapt these methods to an older audience. What this means, in practice, is that she decides who she brings in, her parents and myself, and then together we take responsibility for buying, preparing, cooking, and portioning all of her meals, and for doing everything we can to ensure that she eats them. Ultimately, we take consensual responsibility for guiding her journey back toward a healthy target weight, and together we all decide on the strategies to make this happen. It also means weekly, hour-long group sessions with a therapist to take stock of progress and talk through any challenges. Even if we had been doing nothing else at all, if we lived in an eating disorder vacuum where we could pause time and deal with this and this alone, it would still be overwhelming. That was, of course, not our reality. As the days went by, I began to feel like I was trying to separate myself into two people, coming apart at the seams to be in two places at once, stretching from my downtown Adelaide and Spadina office to our Bathurst and Eglinton-ish apartment, or wherever she happened to be that day. The challenge was equally physical and mental, physical in that I was waking up earlier to ensure that there was food prepared for both breakfast, lunch, and snacks, and coming home to do all of the dinner prep and cooking, regardless of how I'd been feeling that day. There was no more, fuck it, I'm having cereal. Mental, in that while trying to focus on the hectic nonsense that is a full-time job at a small and overly ambitious Canadian charity, I tried to ensure, from afar, that she was eating two meals and two snacks. Sometimes this meant text message reminders. Sometimes this meant phone calls or in-progress Snapchats. Sometimes, on days when things were very difficult, it meant Skyping her from a meeting room during lunch to help her through it. Adding to all of this was the fact that, in the beginning, I had no idea what to give her in order to restore her weight. I didn't even eat properly, whatever that even meant. How was I supposed to be in charge of someone else's restorative nutrition? In those early days, my answer to everything seemed to be, put some nuts on it. <laughs> some days were easier than others. Some days I was in a better mood and so cooking came easier. Some days she was in a better mood, and so eating came easier. I didn't always know what to say, and I didn't always know what to do. And I never did get comfortable controlling someone else's life in such an extreme way. I never did get comfortable giving her portions that I myself would have struggled to finish. And I worried constantly about the potential impact that all of this was having on our relationship. As I absorbed what felt like an impossible amount of responsibility over her life, it felt hard to stop us sliding away from a relationship of partners and toward a relationship of caregiver and receiver. I didn't know if anything was really changing, 
I just had this fear of waking up one day and discovering that something had. I just wanted to do what was best for her. I just wanted to see her recover. But things only got harder before they got easier. At our next FBT session, we learned that she had lost more weight. I knew this wasn't my fault, in theory. But in practice, I couldn't help but feel a crushing sense of guilt. After learning the news, I sat in a, shade of, a state of shock, as if a mortar had just gone off near our trench in this battle with the eating disorder. And all I could hear was the ringing sound of having failed her, all other conversation fading into the background. I couldn't stop my mind from racing through the scenarios of the preceding few days, trying desperately to discover what I could or should have done differently. The times when I could have added another spoonful or a bigger snack, maybe I should have put some nuts on it. I knew that it wasn't my fault, and I knew that she would tell me the same. It was, as the therapist had said, her job to step off the train tracks. But there's a difference between understanding and accepting. As the weeks wore on, it would get harder still, less so because of the eating disorder itself, and more so because of my own struggles and unhappiness at work. More and more, I found myself coming home without the energy to do all of the cooking for that night's dinner or for tomorrow's lunch. But like a soldier with PTSD flashbacks, I couldn't relive that feeling of having failed her. Throughout all of this, she kept telling me that she was there to listen to my struggles too, that it was a two-way street. And I knew that she meant it, that she wanted me to share. But there's a difference between understanding and accepting. It becomes all too easy in situations like this, I had learned to convince yourself to just bury it. I got better and better at doing what she would often excitedly tell me about trees. Do you know what happens to trees when they get hurt? She would ask, maybe forgetting that we'd had this exact conversation at least a few times already. Maybe just really stoked on trees. <laughs> they compartmentalize. And so I did, too. I threw myself wholly into being a good eating disorder recovery partner and packed all of my stresses, anxieties, and fears into boxes, simply sprouting my limbs in new directions when emotions got in the way. And there was a lot to compartmentalize. The fear of not doing enough, the guilt that came on days when I forgot to check in with her to see if she'd eaten, the self-criticism that came any time I felt like complaining about everything that I was trying to hold together, and the worry that all of this, our new rotation around the eating disorder at the center of our solar system, was irreparably changing the dynamic of our relationship. It was during these weeks, when speaking with a close friend who found herself in a comparable situation, that I learned an important truth. After pouring out many of the compartments for the first time, piling them up on the cafe floor, she passed on words that a friend had recently given her. Sometimes, you just need someone to tell you, Man, that sucks. I'm sorry. That's so hard. And she was right. It sounds so simple and so surface level and so banal. But when you're locked in the Gollum Smeagol guilt spiral of, this is so exhausting. But she's your partner. I'm struggling a lot too, though. 
she's the one with the eating disorder. How can you complain? Sometimes you just need tacit acknowledgement that it's okay to feel like that. It is hard, and it is exhausting, and there are days when you want to give up. But admitting as much doesn't lessen your devotion or commitment. It just means you're human. As time went on, we began to find a rhythm. Though I still didn't really feel like I knew what I was doing, I began to learn strategies and pick up on visual cues that alerted me to how she was feeling. Like how eating somewhere other than the kitchen often made difficult meals easier, or how to manage the situation when she just didn't want to eat, taking a break or knowing how to talk her through it. Occasionally, it just meant playing the role of obstinate hard-ass and not giving her eating disorder any room to budge. Whatever it was, it was working, and her weight began to climb and then stabilize. Within a few months, she had reached and was maintaining her target weight. We're now done with FBT, and her weight is still above the level it needs to be, but it's still not easy. There are days when the eating disorder rears its head and eating is hard. There are days when the depression, the other end of the eating disorder teeter-totter, rises, blocking out much of the light. There are also all of the other and more internal battles that she must fight. Her negative associations with certain foods or activities, her difficulty with exercise, and her concerns about this new and different body she finds herself in. And so our journey is ongoing, and if clinical averages are to be taken into account, likely will continue in some shape or form for at least a few more years to come. As long as she'll have me, I'll be there every step of the way, working through challenges and silently hoping that I'm doing enough. I don't expect it to be easy, but I've come to understand that that's partially what love is. The movies so often tell us the opposite, that love is easy and carefree, that love is something you stumble into, like rounding the corner to your living room and seeing her there, sitting on your couch. And it's not that this isn't necessarily the case, it's just that there's this whole other kind of love that is hard, the kind you must believe in and choose to cultivate, the kind that is filled with struggle and challenge, perseverance and strength. Like sitting in a room surrounded by 20 or so strangers brought together by shared experience, watching a new sun form at the center of your solar system and buckling down to adjust to this new orbital trajectory. You can find us online at thereapers.org because we're in the life collecting business. You can like us at facebook.com slash stories we don't tell podcast. If you want to help us out, you can rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks to Rayana for the theme music to this podcast. You can find out more about her in the show notes or at rayana.ca. This episode of the Stories We Don't Tell podcast is brought to you by Pact. Pact, an app that makes you eat vegetables. I want there to be a podcast that's just listening to people eating. That sounds awful. <laughs>